Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with On Practice and Contradiction, and we will be finishing the Contradiction chapter, which has been a little bit sprawling. We're not quite finished the book, there's some more relatively short chapters, and in fact a couple more being inserted here, because the book as a whole is a series of letters, so the length varies greatly as you can imagine. So. Let's finish off the lengthy chapter and then go through a couple more. Section 6. The Place of Antagonism in Contradiction The question of the struggle of opposites includes the question of what is antagonism. Our answer is that antagonism is one form, but not the only form, of the struggle of opposites. In human history, antagonism between classes exists as a particular manifestation of the struggle of opposites. Consider the contradiction between the exploiting and exploited classes. Such contradictory classes coexist for a long time in the same society, be it slave society, feudal society, or capitalist society, and they struggle with each other. But it is not until the contradiction between the two classes develops to a certain stage that it assumes the form of open antagonism and develops into revolution. The same holds for the transformation of peace into war in class society. Before it explodes, a bomb is a single entity in which opposites coexist under given conditions. The explosion takes place only when a new condition, ignition, is present. An analogous situation arises in all those natural phenomena which finally assume the form of open conflict, to resolve old contradictions and produce new things. It is highly important to grasp this fact. It enables us to understand that revolutions and revolutionary wars are inevitable in class society, and that, without them, it is impossible to accomplish any leap in social development and to overthrow the reactionary ruling classes, and therefore impossible for the people to win political power. Communists must expose the deceitful propaganda of the reactionaries, such as the assertion that social revolution is unnecessary and impossible. They must firmly uphold the Marxist-Leninist theory of social revolution, and enable the people to understand that social revolution is not only entirely necessary, but also entirely practicable, and that the whole history of mankind and the triumph of the Soviet Union have confirmed this scientific truth. However, we must make a concrete study of the circumstances of each specific struggle of opposites, and should not arbitrarily apply the formula discussed above to everything. Contradiction and struggle are universal and absolute, but the methods of resolving contradictions that is, the forms of struggle, differ according to the differences in the nature of the contradictions. Some contradictions are characterized by open antagonism, others are not. In accordance with the concrete development of things, some contradictions which were originally non-antagonistic develop into antagonistic ones, while others which were originally antagonistic develop into non-antagonistic ones. As already mentioned, so long as classes exist, contradictions between correct and incorrect ideas in the Communist Party are reflections within the party of class contradictions. At first, with regard to certain issues, such contradictions may not manifest themselves as antagonistic. But with the development of the class struggle, 
they may grow and become antagonistic. The history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union shows us that the contradictions between the correct thinking of Lenin and Stalin and the fallacious thinking of Trotsky, Bukharin and others did not at first manifest themselves in an antagonistic form, but that later they did develop into antagonism. There are similar cases in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. At first, the contradictions between the correct thinking of many of our party comrades and the fallacious thinking of Chen Tushu, Chang Kuo Tao, and others also did not manifest themselves in an antagonistic form, but later they did develop into antagonism. At present, the contradiction between correct and incorrect thinking in our party does not manifest itself in an antagonistic form, and if comrades who have committed mistakes can correct them, it will not develop into antagonism. Therefore, the party must on the one hand wage a serious struggle against erroneous thinking, and on the other, give the comrades who have committed errors ample opportunity to wake up. This being the case, excessive struggle is obviously inappropriate, but if the people who have committed errors persist in them and aggravate them, there is the possibility that this contradiction will develop into antagonism. Economically, the contradiction between town and country is an extremely antagonistic one both in capitalist society, where under the rule of the bourgeoisie and the towns ruthlessly plunder the countryside, and in the Kuomintang areas in China, where under the rule of foreign imperialism and the Chinese big comprador bourgeoisie, the towns most rapaciously plunder the countryside. But in a socialist country and in our revolutionary base areas, this antagonistic contradiction has changed into one that is non-antagonistic, and when communist society is reached, it will be abolished. Lenin said, quote, Antagonism and contradiction are not at all one and the same. Under socialism, the first will disappear, the second will remain. End quote. Footnote 25. That is to say, antagonism is one form, but not the only form of the struggle of opposites. The formula of antagonism cannot be arbitrarily applied everywhere. Section 7. Conclusion. We may now say a few words to sum up. The law of contradiction in things, that is, the law of the unity of opposites, is the fundamental law of nature and of society, and therefore also the fundamental law of thought. It stands opposed to the metaphysical world outlook. It represents a great revolution in the history of human knowledge. According to dialectical materialism, contradiction is present in all processes of objectively existing things, and of subjective thought, and permeates all these processes from beginning to end. This is the universality and absoluteness of contradiction. Each contradiction and each of its aspects have their respective characteristics. This is the particularity and relativity of contradiction. In given conditions, opposites possess identity, and consequently can coexist in a single entity, and can transform themselves into each other. This again is the particularity and relativity of contradiction, but the struggle of opposites is ceaseless. It goes on both when the opposites are coexisting and when they are transforming themselves into each other, and becomes especially conspicuous when they are transforming themselves into one another. This again is the universality and absoluteness of contradiction. 
In studying the particularity and relativity of contradiction, we must give attention to the distinction between the principal contradiction and the non-principal contradictions, and to the distinction between the principal aspect and the non-principal aspect of a contradiction. In studying the universality of contradiction and the struggle of opposites in contradiction, we must give attention to the distinction between the different forms of struggle. Otherwise, we shall make mistakes. If, through study, we achieve a real understanding of the essentials explained above, we shall be able to demolish dogmatist ideas which are contrary to the basic principles of Marxism-Leninism and detrimental to our revolutionary cause and our comrades with practical experience will be able to organize their experience into principles and avoid repeating empiricist errors. These are a few simple conclusions from our study of the Law of Contradiction. Chapter 5. Combat Liberalism We stand for active ideological struggle because it is the weapon for ensuring unity within the party and the revolutionary organizations in the interest of our fight. Every communist and revolutionary should take up this weapon. But liberalism rejects ideological struggle and stands for unprincipled peace, thus giving rise to a decadent, philistine attitude and bringing about political degeneration in certain units and individuals in the party and the revolutionary organizations. Liberalism manifests itself in various ways. To let things slide for the sake of peace and friendship when a person has clearly gone wrong, and refrain from principled argument because he is an old acquaintance, a fellow townsman, a schoolmate, a close friend, a loved one, an old colleague or old subordinate. Or to touch on the matter lightly instead of going into it thoroughly, so as to keep on good terms. The result is that both the organization and the individual are harmed. This is one type of liberalism. To indulge in irresponsible criticism in private instead of actively putting forward one's suggestions to the organization, to say nothing to people to their faces but to gossip behind their backs, or to say nothing at a meeting but to gossip afterwards, to show no regard at all for the principles of collective life but to follow one's own inclination, this is a second type. To let things drift if they do not affect one personally to say as little as possible while knowing perfectly well what is wrong, to be worldly wise and play safe and seek only to avoid blame, this is a third type. Not to obey orders, but to give pride of place to one's own opinions, to demand special consideration from the organization, but to reject its discipline, this is a fourth type. To indulge in personal attacks, pick quarrels, vent personal spite or seek revenge instead of entering into an argument and struggling against incorrect views for the sake of unity or progress or getting the work done properly, this is a fifth type. To hear incorrect views without rebutting them, and even to hear counter-revolutionary remarks without reporting them, but instead to take them calmly as if nothing had happened, this is a sixth type. To be among the masses and fail to conduct propaganda and agitation, or to speak at meetings or conduct investigations and inquiries among them, and instead to be indifferent to them and show no concern for their well-being, forgetting that one is a communist and behaving as if one were an ordinary non-communist. This is a seventh type.
to see someone harming the interests of the masses and yet not feel indignant or dissuade or stop him or reason with him, but to allow him to continue. This is an eighth type. To work half-heartedly without a definite plan or direction. To work perfunctorily and muddle along. So long as one remains a monk, one goes on tolling the bell. This is a ninth type. To regard oneself as having rendered a great service to the revolution. To pride oneself on being a veteran. To disdain minor assignments while being quite unequal to major tasks. To be slipshod in work and slack in study. This is a tenth type. To be aware of one's own mistakes and yet make no attempt to correct them, taking a liberal attitude towards oneself. This is an eleventh type. We could name more, but these eleven are the principal types. They are all manifestations of liberalism. Liberalism is extremely harmful in a revolutionary collective. It is a corrosive, which eats away unity, undermines cohesion, causes apathy and creates dissension. It robs the revolutionary ranks of compact organization and strict discipline, prevents policies from being carried through, and alienates the party organizations from the masses which the party leads. It is an extremely bad tendency. Liberalism stems from petty bourgeois selfishness. It places personal interests first, and the interests of the revolution second. And this gives rise to ideological, political, and organizational liberalism. People who are liberals look upon the principles of Marxism as abstract dogma. They approve of Marxism, but are not prepared to practice it or to practice it in full. They are not prepared to replace their liberalism by Marxism. These people have their Marxism, but they have their liberalism as well. They talk Marxism, but practice liberalism. They apply Marxism to others, but liberalism to themselves. They keep both kinds of goods in stock and find a use for each. This is how the minds of certain people work. Liberalism is a manifestation of opportunism and conflicts fundamentally with Marxism. It is negative and objectively has the effect of helping the enemy. That is why the enemy welcomes its preservation in our midst. Such being its nature, there should be no place for it in the ranks of the revolution. We must use Marxism, which is positive in spirit to overcome liberalism, which is negative. A communist should have largeness of mind, and he should be staunch and active, looking upon the interests of the revolution as his very life, and subordinating his personal interests to those of the revolution. Always and everywhere, he should adhere to principle and wage a tireless struggle against all incorrect ideas and actions, so as to consolidate the collective life of the party, and strengthen the ties between the party and the masses. He should be more concerned about the party and the masses than about any private person, and more concerned about others than about himself. Only thus can he be considered a communist. All loyal, honest, active, and upright communists must unite to oppose the liberal tendencies shown by certain people among us, and set them on the right path. This is one of the tasks on our ideological front. Chapter 6. The Chinese people cannot be cowed by the atom bomb. Main points of a conversation with Ambassador Carl Johann K. Sundström, the first Finnish envoy to China, when he presented his credentials. China and Finland are friendly countries, 
Our relations are based on the five principles of peaceful coexistence. China and Finland have never come into conflict. In the past, China's wars with European countries were only with Britain, France, Germany, Tsarist Russia, Italy, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Holland. These countries all came from afar to commit aggressions against China. As in the invasions by the Anglo-French Allied Forces and by the Allied Forces of the Eight Powers, including the United States and Japan. Sixteen countries took part in the war of aggression against Korea, including Turkey and Luxembourg. All these aggressor countries claimed to be peace-loving while branding Korea and China as aggressors. Today, the danger of a world war and the threats to China come mainly from the warmongers in the United States. They have occupied our Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits and are contemplating an atomic war. We have two principles. First, we don't want war. Second, we will strike back resolutely if anyone invades us. This is what we teach the members of the Communist Party and the whole nation. The Chinese people are not to be cowed by US atomic blackmail. Our country has a population of 600 million and an area of 9,600,000 square kilometers. The United States cannot annihilate the Chinese nation with its small stack of atom bombs. Even if the US atom bombs were so powerful that, when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the earth, or even blow it up, that would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole though it may be a major event for the solar system. We have an expression. Millet plus rifles. In the case of the United States, it is planes plus the A-bomb. However, if the United States with its planes plus the A-bomb is to launch a war of aggression against China, then China with its millet plus rifles is sure to emerge the victor. The people of the whole world will support us. As a result of the First World War, the Tsar, the landlords, and the capitalists in Russia were wiped out. As a result of the Second World War, Chiang Kai-shek and the landlords were overthrown in China, and the East European countries and a number of countries in Asia were liberated. Should the United States launch a Third World War, and were it to last eight or ten years, the result would be the elimination of the ruling classes in the United States, Britain, and the other accomplice countries, and the transformation of most of the world into countries led by the communist parties. World wars end not in favor of the warmongers, but in favor of the communist parties, and the revolutionary people in all lands. If the warmongers are to make war, then they mustn't blame us for making revolution or engaging in subversive activities, as they keep saying all the time. If they desist from war, they can survive a little longer on this earth, but the sooner they make war, the sooner they will be wiped from the face of the earth. Then a people's united nations would be set up. Maybe in Shanghai, maybe somewhere in Europe, or it might be set up again in New York, provided the US warmongers had been wiped out. Chapter 7 US Imperialism is a Paper Tiger Part of a talk with two Latin American public figures. The United States is flaunting the anti-communist banner everywhere in order to perpetuate aggression against other countries. The United States owes its debts everywhere. It owes debts not only to the countries of Latin America, Asia, and Africa, but also to the countries of Europe and Oceania. The whole world, Britain included, dislikes the United States. 
the masses of the people dislike it. Japan dislikes the United States because it oppresses her. None of the countries in the East is free from US aggression. The United States has invaded our Taiwan province. Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Vietnam, and Pakistan all suffer from US aggression, although some of them are allies of the United States. The people are dissatisfied, and in some countries, so are the authorities. All oppressed nations want independence. Everything is subject to change. The big decadent forces will give way to the small newborn forces. The small forces will change into big forces, because the majority of the people demand this change. The US imperialist forces will change from big to small, because the American people, too, are dissatisfied with their government. In my own lifetime, I myself have witnessed such changes. Some of us present were born in the Qing Dynasty, and others after the 1911 Revolution. The Qing Dynasty was overthrown long ago. By whom? By the party led by Sun Yat-sen, together with the people. Sun Yat-sen's forces were so small that the Qing officials didn't take him seriously. He led many uprisings which failed each time. In the end, however, it was Sun Yat-sen who brought down the Qing dynasty. Bigness is nothing to be afraid of. The big will be overthrown by the small. The small will become big. After overthrowing the Qing dynasty, Sun Yat-sen met with defeat, for he failed to satisfy the demands of the people, such as their demands for land and for opposition to imperialism. Nor did he understand the necessity of suppressing the counter-revolutionaries, who were then moving about freely. Later, he suffered defeat at the hands of Yuan Shikai, the chieftain of the northern warlords. Yuan Shikai's forces were larger than Sun Yat-sen's, but here again this law operated. Small forces, linked with the people, become strong, while big forces opposed to the people become weak. Subsequently, Sun Yat-sen's bourgeois democratic revolutionaries cooperated with us communists, and together we defeated the warlords set up left behind, by Yuan Shikai. Chiang Kai-shek's rule in China was recognized by the governments of all countries and lasted 22 years, and his forces were the biggest. Our forces were small, 50,000 party members at first, but only a few thousand after counter-revolutionary suppressions. The enemy made trouble everywhere. Again this law operated. The big and strong end up in defeat, because they are divorced from the people whereas the small and weak emerge victorious because they are linked with the people and work in their interest. That's how things turned out in the end. During the anti-Japanese war, Japan was very powerful. The Kuomintang troops were driven to the hinterland, and the armed forces led by the Communist Party could only conduct guerrilla warfare in the rural areas behind the enemy lines. Japan occupied large Chinese cities such as Peking, Tianjin, Shanghai, Nanking, Wuhan, and Canton. Nevertheless, like Germany's Hitler, the Japanese militarists collapsed in a few years in accordance with the same law. We underwent innumerable difficulties and were driven from the south to the north, while our forces fell from several hundred thousand strong to a few tens of thousands. At the end of the 25,000 Li Long March, we had only 25,000 men left. In the history of our party, many erroneous left and right lines have occurred. Gravest of all were the right deviationist line of Chen Tu Shu 
and the left deviationist line of Wang Ming. Besides, there were the right deviationist errors committed by Chang Kuo Tao, Ko Kang, and others. There is also a good side to mistakes, for they can educate the people and the party. We have had a good many teachers by negative example, such as Japan, the United States, Chiang Kai-shek, Chen Tu-shu, Li Li-san, Wang Ming, Chang Kuo Tao, and Cao Kang. We paid a very high price to learn from these teachers by negative example. In the past, Britain made war on us many times. Britain, the United States, Japan, France, Germany, Italy, Tsarist Russia, and Holland were all very interested in this land of ours. They were all our teachers by negative example, and we were their pupils. During the War of Resistance, our troops grew and became 900,000 strong through fighting against Japan. Then came the War of Liberation. Our arms were inferior to those of the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang troops then numbered 4 million. But in three years of fighting, we wiped out 8 million of them all told. The Kuomintang, aided by US imperialism, could not defeat us. The big and strong cannot win. It is always the small and weak who win out. Now US imperialism seems quite powerful, but in reality it isn't. It is very weak politically because it is divorced from the masses of the people and is disliked by everybody, and by the American people too. In appearance it is very powerful, but in reality it is nothing to be afraid of. It is a paper tiger. Outwardly a tiger, it is made of paper, unable to withstand the wind and the rain. I believe the United States is nothing but a paper tiger. History as a whole, the history of class society for thousands of years, has proved this point. The strong must give way to the weak. This holds true for the Americas as well. Only when imperialism is eliminated can peace prevail. The day will come when the paper tigers will be wiped out. But they won't become extinct of their own accord. They need to be battered by the wind and the rain. When we say US imperialism is a paper tiger, we are speaking in terms of strategy. Regarding it as a whole, we must despise it. But regarding each part, we must take it seriously. It has claws and fangs. We have to destroy it piecemeal. For instance, if it has ten fangs, knock off one the first time, and there will be nine left. Knock off another, and there will be eight left. When all the fangs are gone, it will still have claws. If we deal with it step by step and in earnest, we shall certainly succeed in the end. Strategically, we must utterly despise US imperialism. Tactically, we must take it seriously. In struggling against it, we must take each battle, each encounter, seriously. At present, the United States is powerful, but when looked at in a broader perspective, as a whole and from a long-term viewpoint, it has no popular support. Its policies are disliked by the people because it oppresses and exploits them. For this reason, the tiger is doomed. Therefore, it is nothing to be afraid of and can be despised. But today, the United States still has strength, turning out more than 100 million tons of steel a year and hitting out everywhere. That is why we must continue to wage struggles against it, fight it with all our might, and wrest one position after another from it. And that takes time. 
It seems that the countries of the Americas, Asia, and Africa will have to go on quarreling with the United States till the very end, till the paper tiger is destroyed by the wind and the rain. To oppose US imperialism, people of European origin in the Latin American countries should unite with the indigenous Indians. Perhaps the white immigrants from Europe can be divided into two groups, one composed of rulers and the other of ruled. This should make it easier for the group of oppressed white people to get close to the local people, for their position is the same. Our friends in Latin America, Asia, and Africa are in the same position as we and are doing the same kind of work, doing something for the people to lessen their impression by imperialism. If we do a good job, we can root out imperialist oppression. In this, we are comrades. We are of the same nature as you in our opposition to imperialist oppression, differing only in geographical position, nationality, and language. But we are different in nature from imperialism, and the very sight of it makes us sick. What use is imperialism? The Chinese people will have none of it, nor will the people in the rest of the world. There is no reason for the existence of imperialism. And that's our reading for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Actually, you have a question I would be interested in hearing feedback on, which is that for the next book, or maybe in a book's time, I'm thinking about reading a book that charts the history of Russia in Revolution from 1890 to 1928. It's called Russia in Revolution, and it's by S.A. Smith. And I think it would be interesting and useful to have a little bit more context for the specifics of the Russian Revolution. As, for obvious reasons, it is regularly being referenced, I think it would be useful to have some more tangible insight into the actual events of what happened and some of the context and just know more background about what's going on there. In some ways, it feels like it drifts from the theory angle of the podcast, so if anyone has strong oppositions or would rather stick to more theoretical stuff, I would definitely like to hear opinions. If, again, email leftistreading at gmail.com or on Twitter at leftistreading. If you have strong thoughts, either way, if I don't get much uh, dissension, I will probably just go ahead and do it. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>